Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The House of Representatives will hold a vote on a resolution to condemn Trump's President Trump's racist comments towards members of Congress. The president has defended himself earlier today on Twitter. He said, those tweets were not racist. I don't have a racist bone in my body. The so-called vote is being taken and as a Democratic con game. Republicans should not show weakness and fall into this trap. President Trump's most recent racist racist remarks uh, on Twitter serve to underline where his policies are on detention facilities, ICE raids, asylum laws, and the next census, and where they're going. I'm with uh, now uh, Susan Zesch, Executive Director of the Posen Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago. Thanks for joining me, Susan. Thank you for inviting me, Jerome. And Moni Ruiz Velasco is an immigration lawyer and executive director of PASO, the West Suburban Action Project. Thanks for joining us again, Moni. Thank you for having me. You know, I they think President Trump's uh, Twitter rant kind of refocused the mind on uh, the project that he's currently involved in here. Um, how do you how do you react and, and kind of equate what he says with the policies that he's been doing, uh, Moni? Well, I think it's all tied together, right? We He has a white nationalist agenda, and I think every step and every communication that he sends out is actually very consistent with, uh, you know, with that agenda. And I also think we often see when things don't go exactly his way that there tend to be distractions that are put out into the media to, re, as you mentioned, refocus the efforts of the media and the community into other things. Um, I think for us, the main thing is that people need to remain vigilant and need to make sure that they stay engaged uh, with the community uh, so that we can uh, continue to find ways to protect our communities. Uh, Susan Zesch? And also we can underscore his use of the phrase, go back where you came from. It's a really, it's not even dog whistle politics anymore. It's a very um, open call to get rid of immigrants and that people who are either themselves immigrants or look like they might be immigrants or because they're not white um, or somehow beyond his imagination of what an American is supposed to be should leave the country. And then coupled with it was a very nasty tone about, well, Democrats should leave if they don't like it. In other words, a real effort to create a homogenous, and I don't use this term lightly because of my own family history, but to create a homogenous Aryan nation. Um, Moni, when it comes to the things, you mentioned that things haven't gone exactly right for him. And I think the census issue is one where the where things really didn't go right for him. He wanted to have this question on the census. Uh, he was going to fight for it, and then suddenly back down. Um, what would? How how do you think that affects what's going on here? I mean, I think you know, as as we're talking, right? There is an, a very uh, intentional agenda coming from this administration. And, you know, it's not an agenda. It's it's an agenda that looks a little bit different, but that also has been supported by some of the laws that have been passed over the years and decades. So uh, it's not a total surprise for many of us that have been doing this work for a long time, but it is an agenda to exclude and to dehumanize people of color. And I think that the census question was yet another very direct effort at 
making sure that there was fear and undercounting and, um, you know, the invisibility of our communities of color. And I think that loss, you know, both at the Supreme Court, as well as, as, you know, a matter of policy where he first said, well, I'm going to include it anyway, and then later said, oh, we're not going to include it. Um, again, it just kind of continues to soak the fear that already exists and that is very present in our communities. Hey, Susan, do you have some thoughts about what the census loss did to the president's uh, mindset and policy agenda here? Well, I hate to think of trying to get inside Donald Trump's mind, but it's an exercise <laughs> that we need to do. Um, he is such a narcissist that once he's been defeated, he manages to reread it as a win and go on to the next thing. And unfortunately, I think even though he lost in the Supreme Court and even though someone in his administration did persuade him that he could not override a Supreme Court decision by issuing an executive order, in, cer- in a certain sense he won because the fear factor is out there. And the fear factor is out there Um, and buttressed by these threatened raids which didn't happen that will make many families afraid to open the door if someone comes to talk to them about the census. And as we know, the census is the foundation on which political districts are designed in in redistricting after the census. And so any possibility that there will be an undercount of minorities is something that is a plus on President Trump's agenda. So the fear factor is out there, and he's gotten some of what he did want, even though he didn't win entirely. Um, Moni, do you agree with that? Because you're talking about the fear factor, and I imagine people just don't want to open the door for pretty much anybody. The knock's going to come on the door, and you're certainly not going to open it if you think there's a government census worker there. Right. And I mean, I think that's part of the work of many of our organizations to make sure that people understand the importance of the census, under, understand not only why it's important to be counted for purpose of um, redistricting and all of that, but purposes of the fact that our communities of color exist and we are going to be included whether they want to or not, and that we will you know, have that level of participation and civic engagement that I think you know, there is a very intentional Um, effort to try to exclude uh, our communities of color from that. So, but I think the fear factor is, is real. I think, you know, we have for many years been telling people, if anyone that you don't know knocks on your door, just don't even open that, don't engage with them. And so now, you know, that we have this census coming up and with all of the fear that exists, it's going to be a real challenge for many of us. But I think that we, Many of our organizations are already engaged in that work on the ground to make sure that people understand um, not only the immediate reason why it's important to be counted, but the long-term reason for our communities um, and for building more power and civic engagement for our communities in the future. Uh, To move over to the ICE raids, uh, was this – was the mobilization against the ICE raids a loss for uh, President Trump as well, or or did did he win on because of the fear, uh, Moni? Um, I I believe that the mobilization along the ICE raids was a win for our communities. I think that you know, however the president considers that or not, I think uh, is probably a better question for him. But I think for our communities. Uh, our impacted communities, as well as our allied communities and our communities that are standing in solidarity with us, it is 
critical that we mobilize together. And I think what we saw here in Chicago, where we saw a really strong message, not only rejecting, you know, detention and what's happening at the border and what's, you know, the detention that's happening in the interior, but also the broader message of an agency that we want abolished and an agency that was designed to cause the harm that is causing. Um, this is, you know, this was the first unified march, I think, in the country where that was a central message that abolish, abolishing ICE is a central message and saying we will no longer tolerate this harm that is coming to our communities. I think that is a huge win for us as a movement nationally, as well as for us at the local level for our communities to understand why it is important to ask for that and to demand that. There were people who said that the march would have been larger if there that demand hadn't been out there, and uh, it, it, that it's uh, too radical a demand to abolish ICE. And you know, we're going into this presidential election campaign, and we need to uh, you know be smart. Uh, what do you make of that argument? Well, I think that we have had a failing strategy in immigration for the past 30 years, right? I've been doing this work for 20 of those 30, and I think that we haven't seen any favorable laws, uh, any favorable policy that really has been, you know, uh, embracing of our immigrant communities. I, I think we can't keep doing what we've been doing for the past 30 years, which is saying, you know, dividing our communities or categorizing people between the people who are deserving and the people who are undeserving. I think it's time that we really look at the systems that exist and figure out which systems we keep and which, which systems we eliminate. And our immigration laws, are, our situation right now was completely predictable for, you know, many of us who have been doing this work for a long time because of the laws that have been passed because of the criminalization of our communities. Um, I think a lot of people who are scared to say abolish ICE or who feel like that is too radical, maybe, you know, hopefully that if we come together and they understand the history of ICE, the history that ICE wasn't always there, and and, and the reason why it's there, uh, you know, would come around that idea a little bit more. Moni Ruiz Velasco is a immigration lawyer and executive director of PASO, the West Suburban Action Project. And uh, Susan Zesch is executive director of the Posen Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago. And if you want to join the conversation, we'll take a few phone calls at 312-923-9239. That's 312-923-WBEZ. And Susan, you wanted to say a little something on, along the same lines on the abolish ICE question? Yeah, I think that it's really important to keep pushing, particularly within the Democratic Party, to get a more humanitarian approach broadly stated to immigration law. We last had a broad-based amnesty during the Reagan administration. It was 1986. And since then, unfortunately, under successive Democratic um, administrations, we've seen bids by the Democrats, first the Clinton administration in 1996, and then at the beginnings of the Obama administration, who have expressed legislatively and in their policies an idea that if we're serious on enforcement and if we act more like the Republicans, then the Republicans will like us and we can again have a broad-based amnesty. Well, that hasn't worked. And so I think the push within um, and amongst people in the Democratic Party to abandon the idea that we have to act more like Republicans to get them to like us is really – 
being seen as being increasingly absurd and not a good legislative strategy. Going forward with a families belong together, we belong together um, line, I think is going to get us further in terms of gathering large scale support. I wanted to talk also about some of the asylum law proposals of the uh, Trump administration. I don't think most people get asylum law or really understand the nuances of it. Um, Susan, what what is it that has been proposed here by the Trump administration? And uh, why is it uh, – I mean, a lot of people say it's pretty outrageous. Well, they're trying to do, again, by regulation, what the law doesn't really permit. We have a law providing for applications for political asylum that comes out of the United States' adherence to the Refugee Convention and Protocol of 1951 and 67. And in 1980, Congress created the Refugee Act in order to allow for applications for asylum. And it was the intent from the very beginning that the eligibility to apply be as broad as possible. So the law says any alien, and that's the word that's the technical term for foreigners, any alien who arrives at a border or who is in the United States, irrespective of their status, may apply for asylum. Now, there are a few carve-outs like serious criminal offenses, et cetera. But the idea that you could – and Congress has also provided for if someone was in a country where they were safe – and they could have applied for asylum there in a system that had due process. That's in the act. If you went through a safe third country, then, well, you should go back there and apply, and we don't want you to apply here. What the Trump administration has tried to do is make an end run around the statute. They are flying right in the face of this notion that it's a broad eligibility to apply for asylum. It really says irrespective of status. And they're trying to set up what I've been calling an unsafe third country regulation. No matter what country you came through, whether it was safe or not, whether they had a functioning asylum system or not, if you pass through another country and you are coming to our southern border, so it shows it's only aimed at people from Central America and the other regions of the world, Haitians and Middle Easterners and people from um, Africa who try to get in through Mexico, that you can't apply. And I think it's going to be knocked down in the courts. I hope so. Now, um, explain that he was about to sign something with Guatemala the other day. Uh, the president of Guatemala was coming to town. They were going to sign a, a third uh, party agreement and they, they they called it off at the last minute. What happened? Well, it's kind of interesting to read the statement put out by the president of Guatemala afterwards because he keeps sort of saying, well, we're the U.S.'s best ally in fighting transnational crime and we wanted to do this. And really what happened is that the Guatemalan courts Guatemalan migrants' rights, refugee rights advocates went to court and they said, he can't do this, Jimmy Morales, by himself. He needs congressional approval. The Guatemalan court said, yes, you do need congressional approval to sign anything. And therefore, the statement from the president said, well, then they decided they should postpone their scheduled trip to Washington. Very interesting. Um, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about the Republican Party and where it's at and play a clip from Liz Cheney from earlier this morning. And if you have some thoughts on where the Republican Party is at, uh, join us. 312-923-9239 is the number to call. That's 312-923-WBEZ. Susan Zesh is here from the University of Chicago and Moni Ruiz-Velasquez. Uh, she's with the West Suburban Action Project. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The House of Representatives is going to hold a vote on a resolution to condemn President Trump and his racist comments towards members of Congress. The president has defended himself on Twitter today, saying the comments were not racist. And he was also defended by members of Congress this morning. And we're going to hear a clip from Liz Cheney, who is defending the president and talking about uh, what she sees as happening in this country. Here is Liz Cheney. I want to make absolutely clear that our opposition to our socialist colleagues has absolutely nothing to do with their gender, with their religion, or with their race. It has to do with the content of their policies. They're wrong when they attempt to impose the fraud of socialism on the American people. They're wrong when they pursue policies that would steal power from the American people and give that power to the government. They're wrong when they espouse and enable and their leadership refuses to condemn vile anti-Semitism. They're wrong when they rush to blame America first, when they fail to recognize that this is the greatest nation that has ever existed, the exceptional nation. And they're wrong when they fail to recognize that no people has ever lived in greater freedom. And then they go on and fail to provide the resources our men and women in uniform need to defend that freedom. And our colleagues are wrong when they tell Americans, as Congresswoman Presley did just last weekend, that any individual seat at the table is only valuable, only legitimate, if that person espouses some pre-approved set of beliefs deemed appropriate based on their religion or their gender or their race. When they say that, that is racist. So, no, our opposition to our colleagues' beliefs has absolutely nothing to do with race or gender or religion. We oppose them and their policies because their policies are dangerous and wrong and would destroy America. Those are excerpts from Representative Liz Cheney's remarks this morning uh, defending President Trump. Uh, They're going to vote uh, against the resolution that uh, President Trump uh, had racist comments towards members of Congress there in in the congressional um, vote that will happen soon. And I want to get people's opinion on where the uh, Republican Party is at. The number to call is 312-923-9239. That's 312-923-WBEZ. And um, what did you make of what Liz Cheney is saying there? Um, We've got a a situation where she's espousing some – Uh, pretty radical thoughts herself there, Susan Zesch. Well, in part, because I'm always thinking about history, we are right back to the arguments over the New Deal with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that to have a government which provides for people to enable them to live a dignified life somehow is automatically socialism, and socialism becomes a dirty word in in her mouth. Um, But it's clearly not just about ideological differences and differences over policy because the president wrapped this all in a go back to where you came from and that is so explicitly racist. And his eagerness to apply this to a group of very strong and upright women who are willing to stand for what they say for makes it sexist too. I mean he's just – you know he's decided that he wants to fight against ideas he doesn't like by completely smearing the messengers of those ideas and he's doing so using really explicitly historically racist tropes. Um, Moni Ruiz Velasco, uh, do you have some thoughts about what we were hearing there from uh, Liz Cheney? 
Well, again, I think it's, you know, it's a rallying call for the Republican Party. We've seen, you know, this administration do it over and over again. It's, you know, an anti-immigrant, anti-people of color uh, rhetoric. And, um, you know, I think it's facts matter. And I think, uh, you know, the president always or often, um, you know, puts things out that are not based on facts. Right. And I think that, you know, that's the important piece of information that needs to get out to the public is, you know, what is he talking about? What is he saying? Where is this coming from? And, you know, I agree with Susan. I mean, this is coming from, you know, that historic place. I think this is coming from a place of wanting this country to look the way he wants it to look, which is white. Um, and, um, you know, these women are, you know, these Congress women are being made the target of those attacks. We'll take some phone calls now at 312-923-9239. Tim, you're on WBEZ. Yeah, hi. You know, I had a couple of... Well, I was, wanted to say that, uh, although maybe the president's language uh, should have been clearer and not uh, so disconfusion or people could take offense. But, you know, I just say this. I remember back in the 60s, there was a... Uh, a, a slogan by many people who were, we say, right wing or conservative, or just American loving. It was America, love it or leave it. Now that was um, uh, directed toward the anti-war movement, which the face of that movement was white. All the leaders, all the they were, they were white. But yet, so when we talk about, he says, go back to your home country, or go back, whatever it was, that was the same. Uh, um, type of rhetoric used back then when people who were demonstrably anti-American, who would burn the flag, who would uh, have solidarity with America's enemy at the time, China, Vietnam, Russia, uh, Americans' reaction to that, many Americans of America love it to leave it. So we just, when you just put this as racially targeted, I think that there is some uh, truth to what Liz Cheney is saying. Also, for, I think this should be a more balanced panel because what we're hearing is, is that um, people who are, want some type of control on immigration, who want, uh, don't want open borders, are just racist. Now, I don't think that's the case. Everyone who wants to have some control of our borders is not racist. It's just practical if we're going to have a cu- country. Right. Yet, uh, I think the left paints us as racist so they can have open borders in this country and have and also benefit from the political power they perceive that will come from people who they allow in illegally. Susan Zash, do you have some thoughts about this? Well, um, I was interested that this uh, listener was going towards the America love it or leave it of the 60s and then segueing from that into thinking that might be a good idea. I mean, this whole, if you don't like it, you can leave, is a profoundly anti-democratic sentiment. You know, adding in the racism on the side, but the idea that there can't be and that there shouldn't be debates over, very strong debates over public policy, and particularly when you have a public policy like we did with the war in Vietnam that was sending thousands of American soldiers to their deaths, the ability to question whether those kinds of public 
public sacrifices are worth it is a really important part of what we believe a democracy to be. It is interesting. There is no war now, though. There is no uh, other enemy out there. We're, we're, uh, we're battling ourselves. Well, we have this very vague and inchoate enemy, which is called terrorism. And it's interesting that that label gets put – never gets put on these white guys in the U.S. who are – shooting up schools, et cetera. So it's a sort of – there is – there's a vague war out there in the minds of the public and they're not sure who the enemy is. So that makes it possible for um, people to manipulate their ideas of who and where the dangers are coming from. Let's go to Frank. You're on WBEZ. Hi there. Uh, thanks for the, the wonderful conversation. Um, you know, I've said – I don't know how many times this is the last straw, and, you know, I want to voice my opinion. Um, as a businessman, I try to just stay neutral in public. Um, I have my own opinions. Um, but this, this time, it's just so different because the divisiveness, first of all, is unreal from coming from the President of the United States. Um, second off, if you, don't, if you aren't exactly happy with what's going on in the government, then leave the country. I mean, it's, it's just so unheard of. And for him to call that out to all black and brown women only in Congress, I mean, I think it's time that Republicans, I mean, as a human being, as I mean, there are plenty of things I love about this country and there are plenty of things that I don't like. And I as an uh, American, I'm allowed to express that. It doesn't mean I want to leave the country. It means I want to make it better. Um, So if he truly wants to make America great again or whatever he says, then, you know, it's got to be 100 percent of the people or at least get 60 percent of the people to kind of go with what you're saying but as far as if the republicans do not denounce this i I just i don't know what to say i can't believe i'm this upset about it to be honest i I mean it's it's just it's un-american to me frank thanks a lot for your call let's go to courtney you're on wbez hello thank you for this opportunity so i agree with the last few callers i believe that trump is being exactly who he has always been i feel like we've given him a pass time and time and time again trying to find nuance in what he's saying but he is saying exactly what he means he has never changed people are trying to make their ideas fit with the stuff he's saying and for the republicans not to stand up how do they look at their children how do they look at the people that they're supposed to be supporting and think that this is okay there are people dying in these streets and nobody is trying to help them figure out what their communities are all he wants to do is make this country more white and i feel like War makes money, and the people that he's trying to make money for are his friends. So this is exactly what he wants. He's talking to his friends on Fox News late at night. He's not paying attention. The man seems like he doesn't even have an education past eighth grade. If all they can do is send him pictures so he can try to get an idea of what's going on, he is clueless. And it is painful for me to have to raise my children in this country and have them look up at this man trying for me then to explain to my kids why this isn't right. It's just very, very painful, and it is extremely upsetting. Let's try to sneak in one more call. Adam, you're on WBEZ. Hi, thanks. Yeah, I was just, just hearing uh, your, your guest response to the, the Republican um, Congress, congressperson, and uh, I was studying philosophy in undergrad, and one of the things that I notice is that you know, why, why can't we just look at the arguments as they are? I just hear a lot of um, in, 
you know, imputing of motives, kind of seeing this through the you know, racialized lens, which I understand that your guests think there are good reasons to do so. But when, you know, Republicans are talking about the things that, you know, they think are good, the things that they think are bad, I suppose, you know, why can't we just look at the arguments as they are and, and you know, take some of uh, this, like, motivations game out of it? Why can't we just be charitable and say, oh, okay, let's, let's, let's you know, give you a chance. Let's see. So are you, are you saying the president should be charitable or are you saying the oh, no, opposition I mean, your, should be charitable? Your best interpretations of the Republicans' motivations, you know, it would be charitable in thinking that, they're not just doing everything because they're racist, because they want a white nation. Why can't we just assume that they actually are coming from a better place than that and then look at their arguments as they are instead of starting the conversation from All right. you are racist? Let me get a reaction here. Um, Moni Ruiz Velasco, uh, do you have some thoughts on that? Well, I guess my first thought is that we have to look at who he's uh, le- you know, leveraging these attacks against. It's not just anyone. It's not uh, anyone who's white. And and I think that, you know, we also need to look at the context of his campaign, the context of his policies, and who his policies and his rhetoric and his campaigns have targeted. So I think it's a little bit uh, narrow to just say, take him at his word as if all things were equal, because the reality is for communities of color, all things are not equal. And so that's that's the context of this country and the history of this country. And I think we we can't ignore it in our analysis. Otherwise, we could miss the larger picture. Susan Zesch. Well, I think that there's been a war in this country over the legacy of the New Deal. In other words, what should government look like? Should government be tiny and leave everybody to work on their own? Or should government be like it is in many in the European countries? Uh, an engine of providing human dignity, social mobility, et cetera. And what's happened over the last 40 years, I think, is that the Republican Party has managed to persuade a lot of people, most white working class people, that their agenda should be with the Republican Party, with this small government, with people don't appreciate things unless they have to pay for them, approach to politics and government by using the dog whistle of racism to get people to be to that side, even though it's against their own class interests. And our local historian, Rick Perlstein's written a great set of books on this if people want to read more about it. Susan Zesch is executive director of the Posen Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago. Moni Ruiz Velasco is an immigration lawyer, executive director of PASO, the West Suburban Action Project. And thank you both for joining us and talking about what's happening here in the United States. After the break, we're going to hear about the latest installment in the film series, Cuban Voices. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're going to talk again about Cuban Visions. It's a film series that's being presented by America's Media Initiative and Full Spectrum Features, and it presents the work of Cuban filmmakers to Chicago audiences and people who go will get a unique window into contemporary Cuban society by seeing real, actual Cuban films. And with me is Alex Hawken, and she's a documentary filmmaker, director of the America's Media Initiative, and programmed the Cuban Vision Film Series. Great to see you again. Thanks for having me here, Jerome. In recent programs over the year, we've been ticking off some of the other themes. You had racial inequality and class change in Cuba. You had economics in Cuba, LGBTQ politics. This time, what is it? This time, it's emerging women filmmakers in Cuba and a general discussion of filmmaking. That sounds terrific. Can you give us a little bit of the lay of the land of women filmmakers in Cuba? Well, like in the United States and most places around the world, um, there's a lot of difficulty in being a women filmmaker just in terms of access to a film education, access to technology, etc. And it's a pretty male-dominated industry in Cuba and has been that way for a very long time. So it's been interesting, and Zaida might be able to confirm this, is that I think in the past few years there has been more young women making films, making both fiction films and documentary films, and graduating from both the National Superior Art Institute Film Department and also the International Film School in San Antonio de los Baños. Uh, You mentioned Zaira, who's with us. Zaira Zarza is a professor of cinema studies at the University of Montreal, and she's also a programming associate for the Toronto Film Festival and does their Iberian things. Uh, Great to have you with us, Zaira. Thank you very much for the invitation. Expand on what Alex was talking about there and where women are at in filmmaking in Cuba. Well, the Cuban Film Institute, the ICAIC, was the first cultural institution created after 1959, uh, after the revolution, and ever since it has been, until today, a very male-dominated institution. But uh, I think new initiatives, especially around education, like uh, Alex was saying, the ACTV, the Escuela Internacional de Cine y Televisión de San Antonio de los Baños, was founded in um, 1988, and the FAMCA, the Facultad de Arte de los Medios de Comunicación Audiovisual, that belongs to the University of the Arts, those two institutions have been instruction of young filmmakers in Cuba, and of course, uh, it has graduated new generations of also women filmmakers. This, of course, doesn't erade patriarchy and machismo in the industry, but it has taken certainly steps towards equality, gender equality in the industry. Are you beginning to see certain films come out from women filmmakers that you're proud of? I am, absolutely. I've lived in Canada for the last eight years, but I go to Cuba twice a year, minimum every year, because I continue to work on Cuban cinema, especially uh, women filmmakers. And one of my areas of research has been the Cuban diaspora. So I'll talk a little bit about that first, because I claim that documentary as a genre and the condition of uh, living abroad and being able to have become international students as I was for so 
some of these women filmmakers allowed for more films made by Cuban filmmakers. And I've worked very closely with many of them. Uh, this was an ethnographic research where I interviewed over 30 filmmakers. Many of them were women. And they lived not only in the United States, uh, even if we have the largest diaspora there, but in Geneva, Switzerland, in Spain, in Mexico, in other countries of the global south. And they have been able to um, make films and screen them both abroad and send them back home so that we in Cuba can also enjoy them and uh, so that they continue to be part of Cuban production. Some of them are Heidi Hassan, Daniel Hernandez, Tamara Segura, who lives in Canada, Patricia Perez. And we presented in 2015 a beautiful panel on Cuban women filmmakers at the Toronto International Film Festival as part of the higher learning program there. Now, on the island, with all the financial challenges that exist uh, there, not that for diasporic women this is any better. It is There's another layer of inequality and otherness when you go somewhere where you're an, an accented filmmaker, you don't speak the language, and you have to um, kind of insert yourself in a different context, uh, it is also challenging. But in Cuba, essentially financially and also dealing with a very centralized uh, film production at the Cuban Film Institute, or ICAIC. So some women uh, participate and work now at ICAIC and make films with the collaboration of ICAIC. But also in the independent scene of uh, Cuban cinema, the work of women filmmakers is incredible. As directors, Marilyn Solaya, for example, uh, Patricia Ramos, and of course Sheila Poole and Carla Valdez Leon, the two uh, filmmakers invited to the event and emerging women filmmakers at Chicago are doing amazing work. And I would like to highlight also when we understand the concept of women filmmakers, it's not only the directors, although their work is, of course, essential. They're like the masterminds behind any kind of audiovisual production. But there are many women who are producers in contemporary Cuban cinema who are doing incredible work. Claudia Calviño, Leila Montero, Maritza Ceballos, uh, working in Cuba but living in Chile, Claudia Oliveira. All of these women are graduates from either IACTV or FAMCA, and, and they continue to support films directed by men and women, both in Cuba and abroad. We're talking about Cuban women in film. It's the latest installment in the Cuban Visions film series, which is taking place on Friday, July 19th at 7 p.m. at the Athenaeum Theater, where the Cuban film series has been shown. And uh, we're talking with Zaira Zarza, and she's with the University of Montreal, and Alex Hawken here, who programmed the Cuban Vision film series. Tell us about the films that you're showing this time around. There's two films, and they're made by women. It's a short fiction. One is called Fragile, directed by Shayla Poole. And then there's a, about a 45-minute long documentary called December Days, which is about Cuba's participation in the war in Angola and the situation with veterans um, from that war who currently live in Cuba. All right. Let's talk, first of all, about the fiction one. Zaira, what do you know about the film Fragile? Yeah, Fragile was uh, uh, directed by Sheila Poole, and it's a short fiction film. And Dia de Diciembre was directed by Carla Valdez Leon, and it's a kind of a medium-length documentary. And what I find very interesting about both of them is, to a certain extent, they both uh, reflect something that I have uh, studied uh, before in Cuban women filmmakers, which is 
also a trend or uh, um, a characteristic of films made by women, not only from Cuba, but from the world. And it's the first person approach or the processes of self-inscription that we can see in different films, whether they're documentaries, experimental or fiction. Uh, in the case of uh, Sheila Poole's uh, short film, Fragile, um, that women are at the center of the story. The story reflects elderly women, uh, mental health issues, and a mother-daughter relationship uh, in a kind of isolated space of a house, uh, which is also a problem that Cuban women deal with every day. So I think it's also a reflection of what happens to Cubans when they become old. What options do they have? How family relations change in a country that actually has rates of birth that are at the level of the first world? It's a, it's a society that is aging very quickly. And this is something that worries Chela certainly. She's also a wonderful sound designer. She has won the Coral Award of the Havana Film Festival for her work in, in a film by Fernando Perez. And uh, it's great to see her also behind the camera as a director. And also the Carla Valdez Leon documentary, even if it touches a moment in history that happened when she was probably, you know, very, very young or... Yeah. Not born yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> now, I, I want to... Yeah, let's hang on there for a second because I don't think yeah. most probably listeners know about the Cuban role in Angola. Um, yeah. it, it, but it was from 1975 to 1991, 400,000 Cuban soldiers and civilians were sent to Angola in support of the country's government. The country's government was fighting a rebel organization that uh, was supported by apartheid South Africa and the United States. In a lot of ways, that fight, you know, and historically, it looks pretty good. I mean, it wasn't too uh, bad a thing to be doing. If you're out there intervening, you were intervening in the, you know, against apartheid South Africa. That looks pretty good these days. But the film's really about the veteran issue, essentially. And it resonates very interestingly with our own and everyone's own veteran issues as they look at it. Yeah. I'll say uh, something very briefly about the film, and then, Alex, can you expand? What I find interesting in that she mentioned something that touches young Cubans very much and it's the concept of post-memory something that happened when you're young or even before you were born that continues to resonate today and it affects contemporary society so I think Carla uh, who's a very young filmmaker it's reflecting very deeply about this issue and she uses her own like a voiceover narration so it becomes also a kind of a personal tale of what her take is on this very important event one of the reasons why i chose the films and what i've been trying to do with the films um, that i've been programming in this series is to pick films that resonate in the united states that it's not oh this is just a cuban issue and we have no relationship to it and jerome as you said the issue of veterans and what happens to veterans after they serve their country I think, is very well discussed in December Days. It's about veterans' issues. Veterans don't get as much benefits or attention as they want. They talk about that. There's a group of Cuban soldiers who sit around in a circle, and they all pretty straightforward about their gripes about this. There's also trauma. They go through trauma, and we've all learned a lot about post-traumatic stress syndrome, and these guys had it. I think also a phenomena that I see happening around documentaries like historical documentaries, these young filmmakers are uncovering stories that they haven't really been told. You know, the way that the war in Angola is talked about in Cuba isn't very expansive. <laughs> Another thing I want to say, just in regards of emerging women filmmakers in general in Cuba, I've seen a lot of these 
women, whether they function as directors or sound people or producers, a willingness to really collaborate and provide lots of in-kind services to each other. I see this very directly at the Young Directors Film Festival in Cuba where uh, America's Media Initiative gives out a prize to documentaries in production and sitting with me in the jury are mostly women <laughs> who have independent production companies and who want to collaborate and provide in-kind, whether it's technical services or consulting services, to their fellow male and female filmmakers. We're talking about the Cuban Visions film series, and the fourth installment is coming up here on Friday, July 19th at 7 p.m. at the Athenaeum Theater. We're talking about December Days and Fragile, the two films. And I want to say something else about December Days as I watched it, and which has been familiar to me from other Cuban films. The pacing is a little slower. And for most of some people, it might be a little uh, jolting to have a slower pace, but I really dig it. There is some silence there that is really meaningful. And once you kind of get into the rhythm and you're hearing the films about hearing the people and the veterans and the people who are talking, there's some space in there for you to think about it. And I think that's beneficial. I thought it was pretty deep in that way. It kind of lets you go to another level, our fast-paced cutting, and we, we don't live a minute without a sound in it. I liked it. Yeah, it's meditative. Yeah. I wanted to ask a question about what is happening today in Cuba. I understand that there is a new independent production company law that is coming onto the books in Cuba. Zaira, can you explain what this is? This will affect all independent filmmakers in Cuba. Absolutely. It was long overdue for many years, independent filmmakers who were gathering in different assemblies and created different groups to discuss and present to the centralized Cuban Film Institute, the possibility for them to gather as cooperatives to be able to produce independently and expand the possibilities of co-production, which I think is essential for all Latin American cinema and cinema in the global south. Like We need to work together in order to improve prove the sometimes um, complex national industries because of lack of funding or because uh, different perspective on cinema making. So laws of cinema in Latin America had put in the picture cinematographies like from the Dominican Republic, from Uruguay, really small countries that had doubled their national production and co-productions uh, in the last few years or ever since the law of cinema was created in comparison to the cinema that was made before that time. So Cuba, who had a very essential and old law of cinema created with the Cuban Film Institute in 1959, had not updated the law. And for many years, Cuban filmmakers were struggling very deeply to make this happen. And finally, on June 27th, it was released. Uh, so it will start functioning two months from now. There's still... They're thankful, and we have to take a very close look at what the decree is proposing. But finally, there's a lot of cinema for film and media productions in Cuba where filmmakers can get together and work together. And uh, there will be a state fund devoted to national productions in collaboration with ICAIC, but beyond the institution that had been the central uh, producer of Cuban cinema for a long time, apart from the independent movement. Alex, do you want to say something about the new situation? I know in terms of outside funding, it's been a huge problem to get funding to filmmakers that live and work in Cuba because there was no 
For example, independent production companies couldn't open a bank account. You know, if you're giving a grant to somebody, you're not giving it to them individually. You're giving that to the collective production company. And there was no way to really get that money to them. They would have to go to third countries. And it was very, very complicated. So I think this will really be beneficial for the filmmakers, especially in terms of funding, to have a legal recognition (laughs) that independent filmmakers actually exist in Cuba will be very helpful. Sounds good. Well, I hope some people get out and see the Cuban Vision film series. And the latest installment is coming up here on Friday, July 19th at the Athenaeum Theater. It's about emerging women filmmakers. We've been talking about the two films that are going to be there. Coming up next, you're going to have Revolutionary Aspirations in October. And in November, you're going to do a session on The Personal is Political. So it's uh, more opportunities out there for in the Cuban Vision film series for people to see it and see actual films from Cuban filmmakers that they wouldn't normally see in the United States. And Zaira will be there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there will also be another Cuban feminist film critic, Danai Dieguez, who um, will be joining in the conversation. And she's from another generation of feminist film critics. So I'm hoping that the discussion will touch on very broad themes. It sounds good. Uh, So there's talk back after the films, as we heard. And hopefully you can find out about the Cuban Vision film series and go see it. Where should people look on the Internet? Um, They can look on americasmediainitiative.org, our website, or they can go to the Full Spectrum Features site as well. Alexandra Hawken is a documentary filmmaker, and she programmed the Cuban Vision film series. And thanks a lot for joining us again. Well, thank you so much, Jerome, for having us. And thanks a lot, Zaira Zarza. She is with the University of Montreal, where she's a professor of cinema studies, and she's a programming associate for the Toronto Film Festival as well, and will be there for the uh, discussion after the Cuban Vision Film Series. Thanks for joining us, Zaira. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to this event. Well, we had a great time last week on our trip through the Great Lakes doing radio programs from Kalamazoo, and we did one from Detroit that focused on grassroots activism. And one of the things we didn't get to air while we were in Detroit was an interview we conducted at the Jimmy and Grace Lee Boggs Center. Jimmy and Grace Lee Boggs were legendary organizers and theoreticians in Detroit. And we talked with Rich Feldman, who works with the Jimmy and Grace Lee Boggs Center, and we will air that interview tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Mike Gilmore engineered today's program. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.